You're listening to episode 112 of Caucus Talk, your source for culture, history, and tourism in the North Caucasus mountains of Russia. I'm Andrew. My name is Eli. This is your source for positive news and stories and uh, insights from the North Caucasus because we figure that there's enough negativity out there about the North Caucasus that we want to be on the other side of the seesaw, right, Andrew? That's right. And we've been doing this for four plus years now. So you would think Google would be blowing up with positive content about the North Caucasus by now. However, if there's one thing that you can't really be too positive about for too long, it's travel. And so uh, particularly when it comes to COVID and, you know, anyone who's ventured outside (laughs) since COVID to travel has really probably experienced the short end of the stick, you know, in some way or the other. But, you know, you compound Russia travel, travel to Russia with COVID travel. And I think you just get a whole new level um, yeah. Andrew, you traveled to Russia not too long ago. Um, what was it like actually in the time of COVID? Yeah, uh, honestly, it was for our family, it was really smooth, all things considered. Um, Andrew, we're supposed to be complaining. <laughs> but, but um, I have heard many stories of complications traveling to Russia and specifically. <laughs> Typically, the routes from the U.S., people will be flown through, routed through Paris or Amsterdam. Um, and our gripe is going to be about Amsterdam and KLM Airlines. Shame on oh, you. Oh, yeah. Yes. You get an because, anti-shout out. Oh, a, a man. shout in. And this is much, much uh, worse than a TripAdvisor bad review because we have a huge audience, KLM. Massive. Okay. Um, (laughs) anyways, uh, you know, being routed through Paris is fine because right now the borders to Russia are open for French citizens, but the borders, as we're recording right now, the borders to Russia are not open, uh, from Amsterdam, from the Netherlands. I I think by the time this is released, they are going to be open from what I've read. Mm. But Mm. so lots of people in Europe and in the U.S. have been buying tickets to Russia, flying through Amsterdam, and then all chaos just breaks loose. Uh, <laughs> I, I have so much to say about this, but I want you go ahead, Andrew. Well, so uh, we, we have our guest on the show today who's going to share his experience with this. But I, I think it was two days before he got to Russia, I heard of another guy who um, was routed uh, through Amsterdam. And then in Amsterdam, he was told at the gate, you cannot fly to Russia from here. Um, the, the borders are closed. And he was just like, are you serious? They sold me a ticket. And they said, sorry. Yeah, we're happy can't. to sell you the ticket. Absolutely. Yeah. That, but, but we're not going to be held accountable for it. Yeah. Essentially, it's like Russian citizens from in the Netherlands can fly to Russia. And that's it. So he had to scramble and he managed to buy an extra ticket a new ticket to Frankfurt in Germany and then from Germany route into Moscow and he was good. Um, but I've read, you know, Eli, you and I are part of this uh, Facebook group, Moscow expats. I've yeah. read countless stories of foreigners getting to Amsterdam and just hitting a brick wall. Um, our, our guest today though, they let him through and it Whoa. just made it worse. <laughs> it made it worse. Oh no. So, uh, Matt, you have some fantastic stories you're going to share with us today. But 
First of all, let's welcome to the podcast our guest today, Matt Johnson. Welcome, Matt. All the way from the sunny state of... Wisconsin. Wisconsin, (laughs) which is short for cheese. I don't know. I have been to Wisconsin. I think I've driven through part of it. Matt, what is Wisconsin best known for? What what do you love most about Wisconsin? Well, those are two separate questions. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay, good. We can do two. (laughs) Um, What is is best known for is lax alcohol laws. (laughs) Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, we have German descent, and we were the last state in the <laughs> union a few years ago to make your first DUI anything bigger than a parking ticket. Oh no my goodness! Kidding! Wow, that is lax. But you we're know, best known for cheese to, and beer. Yeah, Andrew had some insight. Remember Andrew on alcohol abuse and latitude episode uh, something yeah, that's right cold yeah. weather we'll have to go back cold weather and anyway so that's interesting interesting correlation but what do you love most about it then matt um please don't say the lax doi rules <laughs> <laughs> no i i really love this madison area where the capital and the university are because it's um yeah it's a size city where you can go from just hippie foodie culture to you know cow poop on your boots in a 15 minute drive. So you get a little bit of everything and people mix nice. well here. That sounds nice, frankly. Nice. Well, right. Matt, we're, we're going to get around to introducing you here sooner or later, but please tell us your Horror travel stories to Ru- first. Tell us your travel to Russia story because it's, it's now it's a good one. It was a nugget, a good one in the moment, but you're here with a smile on your face. Let's hear it. Oh yeah. It's just added. Another great travel story. So, yes, I flew KLM. No problems, no indications that I would have to check any boxes. Uh-huh. Um, they were very insistent with many emails that I show my travel visa and everything in advance. Never a single notice that there might uh-huh. be an issue from <laughs> Amsterdam to Moscow amongst all of those communications. I just... Which dumbfounded me. Yes. But yes, I, I arrived in Moscow. Um, Russia has the... PCR test within 72 hours of arrival, not departure, which tightens things up a little bit. Yeah. But I arrived and was denied entry to the country, and they seemed very confused. I think I spoke with like six or seven different people at Passport (laughs) Control over a period of three hours before they decided that transiting Amsterdam is the same as being from Amsterdam for some reason, though I never went through Passport Control there. No. this is like it's, international, this is the standard. It's called overland. When you go through an airport and you don't leave, you're not technically in the country. Ah, <laughs> so anyway. <sighs> yeah, we tried to explain that, but they eventually decided to deny me. And during all of this time, my 72 hours after my PCR test expired. Oh. So, so I wasn't even really able to board a plane back to the United States. <laughs> I was stuck on the international side of the Moscow terminal. Gosh. I, I smell a movie coming or a book deal or something. <laughs> uh, so they, they do have PCR tests in the airport there at Moscow, but unfortunately they are on the other side of passport control, so you cannot access them. <laughs> but can you send the swab over? I mean, maybe you could get swabbed on one side and have a good-hearted soul carry it across for you. <laughs> Oh, it would be nice, and I would have been happy to pay for the service. 
Uh. Eventually, I got um, a good tip and was told I would be allowed to fly to Turkey. So I purchased a ticket to Istanbul, where I was told there were PCR tests on the transit side of customs there. Uh-huh. And a- arriving there, I was shown to the desk where I was informed from their information desk had PCR tests, but they did not. Oh. Only rapid antigen. So uh-huh. eventually had to find a way through customs. The online same day service wanted to charge like four or five hundred dollars for the more or less instant visa. But luckily, I found a little desk where a man would take $30 U.S. cash and put a stamp in your passport and let you out. Yes, love those desks. Got out, got my um, PCR test, um, met a local individual who's associated with my project at El Rus. So we were able to sit down and have tea while waiting on my results and then get back on the airplane. I mean, that speaks to like kind of the guy you are, Matt, you're like, oh, I'm going to be in Turkey 18 hours. Let's have coffee with a guy. And you made it happen. That's so right. Awesome. That's right. Yeah, it was more like I was in Turkey four and a half hours. <laughs> always wow. time for tea. Let's just, let's just take the takeaway here. There's always time for tea. Man. Uh, wow. That is really painful. And I'm definitely experiencing a lot of secondhand trauma from that and like relived trauma. So um, I'm, I'm just going to have to uh, go crawl in a hole for a little while. But you made it through. You've got a good story. I mean, Andrew, didn't more than once you have people visit you who flew on local Russian airlines down to Pitygorsk from Moscow? And during their stay, <laughs> the airline went bankrupt. So they had uh, no well, like flight that, back to Moscow. The only time I remember that, that, was, that happened to my parents the, the first time they visited. And... I can't I believe swear that. it happened twice. It it happened in Moscow the night before they were going to fly back to the U.S. The air, airline went bankrupt. It's like, sorry, <laughs> we don't exist anymore. We managed to get them home eventually, but yeah, it was crazy. Um, I, it's amazing they ever came back after that. That was so like traumatizing. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, Matt, you you know you ended up getting back into Russia, and then you have a crazy story about losing your wallet in the Moscow airport and a security oh, guy helping God. you find it via Google Translate and security cameras. It's an amazing story, but we need to like get to the point here. <laughs> but anyways, um, we just have story time with Matt Johnson. I'm, I'm telling you, he's he's got good stories. Um, Matt is one of our listeners. And uh, he emailed us, prob- I don't know, it was probably six months ago or something. And I remember being confused because we already knew a different listener by the same name, right. Matt Johnson. <laughs> so we was like, personality crises. Wait, since when is Matt Johnson a mountain climber? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, you reached out to us and um, you had this kind of project. Really, it was an idea at that point. And so much has happened since then. So why don't you kind of introduce yourself uh, to our listeners, what this initiative you're uh, kind of spearheading is, and then we'll, we'll get more into your, your most recent trip here. All right. So the project is the Elbrus for Alpinists pro- project, website Elbrus for the number four alpinists, plural.org. Um, people who climb Elbrus, you know, largely know there are two main routes, or one primary from the south at the ski resort, just yeah. to walk up, and then the north route, which is a similar non-technical climb, where you're, but it's away from the crowds. It's quieter right. and prettier. But after doing some research, um, 
in recent years, I've actually learned there are not two, but six routes on the mountain. Hello. Mm. So, and, you know, European American guiding companies only offer north and south. Yeah, pretty much. Um, Russian companies will let you climb from the east, which is harder, but still not technical. It's still very wild, very nice. And from the northwest, or west, as they tend to call it. And that's an actual nice alpine route. That's beautiful, but there's no infrastructure there either. Um, there is actually a southwest route, which I've now done twice, and a oh south a south direct. It's more of a ski mountaineering route. You can go from the ski resort, but it's a direct route up the glacier to the west summit. Gotcha. So you came, you climbed in 2018, correct? Correct. I came to do a private climb on the Northwest and my guide at that time, who's a fantastic guide, um, Alexander Elisea works for Mountain Guides.pro. Um, he talked me into doing a three-day traverse from the northwest to the southwest through a whole bunch of passes and then climbing this remote southwest glacier up onto mm -hmm. the western plateau and eventually continuing north to intersect the northwest ridge below the west summit. And wow. as far as I know right now, I am the was the first foreigner to do that. And then, oh, my goodness. Um, so I'd, I'd be happy to learn differently if someone's done it. I'd love to hear their story. Okay, so this is your post on summitpost.org that I'm reading. Oh, from the West-ish. Elvis from the West-ish. That's me. <laughs> That's huh. so funny because I was like, I wonder who else, what other, what other stuff is out there about the Western ascent? Because you're right, there's not much in English and, you know, it's not where, and I was like, oh, look, here's this other one. Oh, my gosh. This sounds just like what Matt's saying. Okay, <laughs> this is Matt. Okay, I'm just going to say that this is an incredible, I haven't even read all of it, but this is like pages and pictures, and it's this whole chronicle about your first ascent from the West. Um, really great. I'll, I'll link this, because this will be uh, a really fun for some folks to read, I think. Yeah, I, I wrote that just because I've used Summit Post for years to get trip beta for kind of independent travel, and I'd read some questions like on UKClimbing.com and a few places that people were interested in like the Western side, but didn't have any trip data. So I took the time to write that up to give independent travelers some information if yeah. they wish to, um, you know, copy what I did. Very cool. Yeah. So you climbed 2018, a difficult, um, rarely even by uh, local and Russians standards, uh, climb traverse route. And then kind of what happened after that? Um, well, it was a fantastic trip. I, as you can see in the trip report, if you take time to read a way too long trip report, um, <laughs> I did get sick entering the country with the upper respiratory tract infection. And then with the rapid ascent by summit day, I was coughing up blood, very sick, all of this stuff. But I mean, within hours of coming down from the mountain, I realized this was probably my most enjoyable vacation ever. Couldn't wait to get back. <laughs> um, so it, that tells us a lot about Matt off the bat. Coughing up blood, most enjoyable vacation. Carry on. But the west side, I realized, was absolutely beautiful, and I did not understand why no one was traveling there. Mm. I mean, there's no direct road access from the ski resort, you know, to the western side because of the train and the international border. But it's, you know, it's stunningly pretty. There's trekking options, horse riding options, technical rock climbing you know, actual alpine climbing on Elbrus, it, like there should be hordes of tourists there, but there's nobody other than a handful of Russians occasionally. 
So my thought was, you know, kind of help two communities at once with the project over time, you know, this developed in my head, you know, if we can work with the local, you know, clan in the Valley to help them develop their own, you know, mountain tourism industry with some training, um, mentoring, some equipment, and also online advertising, help them build up their own infrastructure. They could, right. you know, have local employment. And that would benefit foreign travelers by giving them the infrastructure to travel and see what is, you know, to me, just a stunningly beautiful side of the mountain. Hmm. That's really cool. Um, so listeners, just so you can picture this, I don't know if you can picture it in your mind. I can, because <laughs> I've been there, but uh, the south route is Cabardino Bolcoria, uh, climbing up El Bruce. There's one of the most traveled roads in the Caucasus is that road to El Bruce. There's a lot of infrastructure on that side. There's the cable cars. That's their ski resort in the winter. But the west route is the total other side of the mountain. It's a totally different approach. Um, it's through Karachai Cherkessia. Um, and like Matt said, I mean, there's zero infrastructure. There's like some, essentially you go through some mountain villages up there and that's it. And you, you're on the mountain. Um, so yeah, you're talking about literally building something from scratch. Right, because the main Elbrus approach, there are hotels, restaurants, literally a gondola up to 12,000 plus feet, and you can have tea and sit by the fire up there. And then there are the barrel huts and so on and so on for acclimatization. I mean, so when we talk about infrastructure, particularly for for summiting, those that's the kind of stuff we're talking about, right? And then there's, you know, uh, snow cats and stuff. So from the west side, remote villages, and that's all. Right. Yeah, it's. Have I got that right? Yeah, it's just some you know pastoral herders, a little bit of uh, farming, but it's um still very traditional. And one of the sadder bits is there's so little employment. I think a lot of the you know younger people are moving to larger cities just to you know make a living to raise a family. And so there's you know there's a unique culture there, and they've been there a long time. The people living there. Uh, from what I can tell, it's, it was a late Bronze Age, so you know, four thousand years or so. Mm. But you know, there's no employment, so people are leaving. And you know, I'm as we read about different cultures and languages being lost globally, it seems like this is another one that's an at-risk culture. Um, huh. So, providing some, you know, tourism dollars in the area, you know, providing employment, I think will give them at least an opportunity to you know, hold on to their heritage a bit longer. So let me pry a little bit. Um, why did this kind of thing interest you to begin with? What do you do? Is this what you do? Is this, is this sort of like your full-time thing? Is it an NGO? Is this a side passion project? Is this, you know, how, how, did, you, how did you first come to want to climb Elbrus? And then why, once you saw this, did this launch into a whole project website, et cetera? So the project is definitely a passion project. I am... You know, a 45-year-old truck driver from Wisconsin. <laughs> so awesome. definitely not my regular, uh, my regular game. But no, I do love the mountains. I do love traveling rural communities globally. I find them, generally speaking, to be very welcoming. You know, yeah. wherever I've been, I've always felt safer and more at home at, in small rural communities than in any city I've traveled to. Sure. So it's... Um, yeah, I experienced it. I had a great time when I was there in 2018. I just thought mm-hmm. over time, you know, I'd like to go back. Maybe I'd like to bring friends. Usually I travel independently, 
but uh-huh. you know, I thought this was an opportunity where I could try to bring other people to share the experience and to broaden the awareness of this climbing area. And it just, um, yeah, it grew. I talked to Nathaniel J. Menninger, who did the Porter film, where he exposed the living conditions of porters working in the uh, area carrying goods to and from Everest. Mm-hmm. And he, he and I had a lot of long conversations about how we could do something that was, you know, more sustainable, more in line with actually coming in a little bit more humbly, as opposed to the standard Western approach of a bunch of wealthy white guys charging in, like, we're going to do this for you and you're going to love it. <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, you know, have discussions with the local people and let them choose the the nature of the tourism that will be coming on their land. So all the choices will be there. So they'll decide whether or not they want bunkhouses in or near a village. Do they want homestays? Do they want tea houses? Do they want people to bypass camp? You know, everything will be up to them, the exact numbers of tourists coming through. Because um, we'll set up the online reservation system for them through our project and our now um, recently formed nonprofit, the Elbrus Alpine Foundation, which will handle the finances for the project. Wow. So awesome. And we have great partners on that. My other two founding board members are Gregory Kane, who is a previous president of the Chicago Mountaineering Club, and Mark Higton, who is a fellow at the Royal Geographical Society in London. Yeah, I mean, Eli, I don't know if you've if you've been on his website and looked at the team he's assembled, but it, it's quite impressive. I mean, clearly, uh, clearly you have a um, organizational gift, <laughs> Matt, because you've got this team of like almost fifteen people from around the globe, um, and I mean, it's come together quickly. You guys were hoping to do a group climb this year, and because of COVID, it just wasn't possible. Um, but you, you and Mark still came and climbed and. Uh, you're making progress locally with, um, tell us a little about, uh, this actual trip. I know you, you made some local contacts, got to meet some people and it's the village of Hurzuk, right? In Karachay, Cherkessia. Correct. Yep. And a lot of that was thanks to help from you, Andrew. Um, you know, making contact with, um, Maga for me was fantastic. Mm -hmm. You know, he's an excellent, you know, local, well, I guess really he served as a fixer almost. But he was just a right. kind host, you know, picked me up at the airport, you know, drove with me, introduced me to people in the valley. Um, no, it was a, a fantastic local trip getting to meet people. It was unfortunately too fast because of the travel yeah. delays I didn't have. I lost several days in the village, but we did get mm-hmm. to meet people. There was a cultural festival where Mark and I were treated as honored guests and introduced to the community, which was fantastic That's um awesome. uh, we met a few people or i met a few people and started discussions at uh, the university in karachesk okay and yeah. and they're still in touch very very excited about using their contacts to further the project moving forward hoping they can be part of it that's awesome um great great cultural experience in krizuk um met a local herder islam uh, rounded up a nice lamb, which we slaughtered right there, and turned it into Josh <laughs> Leak over a fire that night. That's, That's awesome. Sick. Even invited down a, one of the officers from the local border post. Uh, thank you, Constantine, <laughs> for your time and generosity. <laughs> We're sure he's Good listening. move, man. Yeah. <laughs> Very good move. <laughs> Kostya, good to hope, hope you're hearing us. 
Большой привет. Yep. Shout out. <laughs> Большой привет. What do you yeah, think Matt, they listen Matt to up there me, at the border besides Caucus Talk? Matt, <laughs> Matt, Matt, Matt sent me like 10 pictures from Hurzuk and five of them were lamb uh, over a fire. It was awesome. <laughs> As it, it should is be. truly delicious meat. <laughs> That's awesome. So you guys, um, your goal was to climb then uh, from the west and then your border passes didn't come through, right? So uh, we've talked about this with our listeners, but the border zone, you got got to get a special permit to go up there. It's right near Georgia. And you guys kind of had to uh, make a quick decision, go up a different route, right? Well, we were not going to do the route advertised in the project. We do want to save that climb for next June. Uh, largely because of um, the fact that for most, if not all, the nationalities involved, it will be a first national ascent. I'm aware of, you know, having reached out to many Russian guiding companies, I'm aware of a Canadian climber uh, and a French team and a German who have climbed that Northwest route. Gotcha. But for people from other countries, like involved in our project, Brazil, the U.S., U.K., Belgium, Uganda, South Africa, Jordan, for all those countries, it would be a first national ascent. Wow. And not messing with that, I think, will help, you know, with uh, sponsorship and fundraising dollars from, you know, national organizations. So we did decide to put that climb off. Gotcha. And we were going to, we had planned to do a scouting trek up the Ulukam Valley there along the Georgian border, which is in the border zone. So there are four nice side valleys, um, the most famous of which is Uzunkol which is just okay. beautiful. But so we wanted to do that and then cross through Khotutau Pass to redo the route that I did in 2018. Okay. Uh-huh. But the border passes took too long and we weren't allowed <laughs> past the uh, border checkpoint. So we did have to move around, drive around to the ski resort where we did a little acclimatizing on the mountain and then did a traverse west from the ski resort to intersect basically over towards Kotutau Pass to then do the route that we were going to climb just from a different approach. Gotcha. Which is what you just said was not really very doable because of terrain and stuff, right? It's reverse it, from the ski area. Uh, yeah. If you have, you know, good crampons and an ice axe and are comfortable, you know, side hilling glaciers and sidestepping crevasses, it's, you know, it's completely doable. It's, you know, one day trek west to the base of that glacier, then that climbs up to the plateau. Okay. Yeah. And then you guys, I mean, the pictures you sent from that side of the mountain, Matt, I mean, I've never seen those views. It was so beautiful. Uh, now, I obviously, I know you guys struggled with some bad weather, but I mean, it was really, really untouched out there. What, what was some of the climbing like? The climbing is not technical. It's just somewhat rigorous. So from after that first day's traverse, we had one day moving uphill to a place sometimes called Kremlin Rocks, which is above the headwall at the top of the Ulukam Valley and at the bottom of the glacial ramp that heads up onto the western plateau. Um, From there, depending on snow and weather conditions, it can be dangerous to get to the plateau. Actually, the whole route can be dangerous. It starts out with maybe, depending where you are exactly, a 45 to 60 degree kind of like ice wall at the bottom of the glacier, which is some 
which you just take your time up. And then the main, if you continue to go straight, it would stay very steep, but you can traverse left a little bit to get to the edge of the cliff that falls into the Bulukong uh, Valley. And if you follow that edge, right along the edge, it's not quite as steep. But it's a long, long, hard slog. And we actually, in bad weather and me having some breathing problems that day, we were not able to make it to the top of the glacier in one day's push. We, in 2018, we did make it in a single day. But in my health mm-hmm. and the weather, you know, this September, we did not. And we had a really horrendous thunder snowstorm, which I have seen from a distance once, but never been inside of. Wow. <laughs> So think blizzard with lots of lightning. Yeah, so, I've heard of that. Wow. So we did have to uh, lie down for a while just because if you lifted up an ice axe, it would start to hum. You know, you knew you were about to get hit Holy by moly. lightning. So there's a lot of electric wow. charge. So we did have to shelter. Eventually carved a little notch into the side of the glacier where we camped for two nights, during which I listened to your podcast on dining in the North Caucasus. <laughs> We had Amazing. a small window where I had cell signal, I think from Georgia, actually. <laughs> and I downloaded so, your new podcast. So on the edge of an ice wall, you heard us complaining about ordering ice in our drinks in restaurants. <laughs> I absolutely did. <laughs> That's poetry in motion, man. That's great. I feel very honored, Matt, that you would... Uh, Spend some time with us up on that glacier. <laughs> wow. Wow. So you, man, just, I want to clarify for our um, listeners. Um, Elbrus is dangerous. And uh, Matt did this route with a really experienced guide, but there is a reason it's not um, a common route because it's, it's not just for anybody to go up it. So um, you, you did make it out safely, but keep, keep telling us what happened. Cause like this was not the end of uh, y'all's difficulties. <laughs> no, as is common in the mountains or anywhere rugged, you do have to overcome hurdles that pop up as you know, time goes on. So we did have a lot of very strong wind. Uh, it was kind of a late season climb. Our summit day, we woke up maybe two thirty three o'clock and it took a couple hours to break camp. Um, but it was, you know, like gale force winds a whole day. So it was, wow. and we had been having, which sm- in layman's terms is what? 40, 50 miles an hour. Yeah. Right. So, and with all the snow we'd been having in these storms, it went from being icy conditions to avalanche conditions. So, which we actually experienced after breaking camp on the top of the glacier going to, the Western Plateau, we, it had an odd moment where it sounded like we were in the world's largest bass drum as all of the new snow settled, just a big oh, whoomp, wow. at which point we started double timing up before it would oh, you know, cut loose and take us with it. Oh, man. And then once, you know, on the summit day, on the north, on the, on the west side right then, uh, we did have a time where we were climbing to avoid avalanche danger along a little rocky outcrop. And I momentarily strayed about 10 or 15 feet away from it. And when I put my left foot down, the entire slope, only about 10 inches deep, though, but the big slope, it just cracked loose. I was able to pick my foot up and hop back to the right and get out of the avalanche. 
So you kicked off an avalanche just by being a few inches off, basically. Correct. So you definitely something to be aware of and take precautions about. But we summited successfully. Um, and we had hoped to descend to the east after summiting. But the weather and um, general health, I, I had a sick day on the below the western plateau, and Mark was feeling ill on summit day. So we decided in the weather and with Mark feeling ill to go ahead and nix the east descent and just come down the standard route, which, of course, led to another adventure that Andrew's aware of. Oh, my goodness. I wish you could see listeners, Andrew and me, like Andrew's hands are clasped. I'm hugging my knees. We're like listening to this. (laughs) Well, I'll say I got one of my friends uh, texted me and said, Hey, did you see this? There's uh, an American got uh, rescued on Elbrus. He was lost. And I w- we had a climber through our company on Elbrus at that same time. And I was like, this is not good because I know two Americans right now on Elbrus. And there are not a lot of Americans on that mountain right now because of COVID. <laughs> and I knew you it wasn't lost. A- <laughs> well, so I had never climbed up the south route. And during my descent, Three years ago, I was ill, as I mentioned earlier, with the you know, whole coughing up blood and whatnot. Yeah, that so business. I decided just to you know, spend a few dollars and call for a snowmobile from the ski resort on that descent. So you know, it was like 50 bucks. I you know, got on a cell phone, called for a ride, and like, I'll just head down. Nice. And this time, there were only three of us in our climbing party, myself and Mark and our guide, Alexander. And it was complete whiteout at this point. The whole descent was whiteout. You could barely see 30, 40 feet during like a lull. But he was, so Mark was feeling not well. And I was dressed not in my warmest clothing. I was dressed for moving faster. And so I'd move to stay warm and then wait to move to stay wait, you know, wait for, you know, them to catch up. And eventually I just got out ahead of the other two people in my party, which is not generally advisable. But, you know, I, I knew that Mark was in very capable hands and, you know, he was experienced himself. So I wasn't worried for Mark and obviously not for Alexander. So I thought, you know, I'll just stay warm. I'll move faster and I'll head down ahead of them and wait for them, you know, at the bottom of the route. Well, as you descend the standard south route, you know, that they've wanded, they use like willow wands every 30 yards or something to mark the route, which is great. Uh-huh. But there's a point where, for some reason, the wands just stop. I do not know why they only wanted the top half of the route. <laughs> oh. So I'm in a whiteout. The wands have stopped. Like I know where I am. I'm not actually lost. I just don't know the path from where I am down to the ski resort. <laughs> so I'm kind of at a dead end for myself for personal navigation. And a less tired person would have just said, okay, I will wait for my professional guide. <laughs> but after 12 hours with no food or water i was just thinking i'll explore a little bit see if i can follow on the same path and figure it out i realized i couldn't and i just Mm -hmm. kind of sat down i've read enough stories about you know the fatalities on elbrus resulting from people who wander off route on their descent and being lost in a crevasse being lost in a crevasse because there's crevasse danger if you get off of the actual footpath 
Right. Mm. So I thought, I just sat down. I was like, I have a GPS. My exact location is noted. I have $10,000 worth of rescue insurance I paid for. I'll just push a button and get a ride down again. This sounds very easy. <laughs> I like it. Technology to the rescue. You would hope. But what I wasn't realizing is because of the storm, they'd shut down the resort for the day and everybody had gone home. <laughs> so there were no rescue personnel. There was nobody at the top of the lift. There is no one to come and get me. So what I thought would Best be a 45 plans of <laughs> right. mice and men. What I thought would be a 45 minute wait turned into a five and a half hour wait in a blizzard by myself. And I did learn that my original notion to wait because of the crevasse danger was a good one. After five hours, I got frustrated, thought I'm going to make one more try to find the path. I walked not 100 yards before I fell in a crevasse. Oh my goodness. Which you're kidding me. Gratefully was only about two feet wide. So with my hundred liter pack on, I couldn't quite fit. I only fitted. I fell enough to my waist where the pack caught the lip and saved me. Oh my goodness. I didn't know that, Matt. Wow. So I did crawl back uphill. I crawled back uphill to where I finally saw the searchlights from the snow cat that came up. At which point I then stumbled back over. And that was the video on the um, Russian embassy website that people could see. Yeah. (laughs) So I have so many questions. That's, I mean, first of all, thank you for sharing your story. It's instructive. And what were some of your thoughts and feelings toward the end of your five and a half hours? I was um, frustrated to begin with after a while. I couldn't understand why it would take that long because I knew I was only a 15 minute or so snowmobile ride from where they actually parked the snowmobiles and snowcats. Right. Yep. My thought was just give somebody a GPS so they can stay on track and just come get me. You've got my location. (laughs) But there was actually a second problem in that my GPS used a different um, system for marking location than the the local Russian system. So thank you to Sergey Baranov, the owner of the guide company I use. Um, he himself did take the time that evening to take the one set of data and kind of translate it into the other set for the uh, rescue wow. team that eventually responded. So Sergey saved the day, you know, got me help. I otherwise would have had a very, very long and uncomfortable night. I, I wouldn't have died. I had warm clothes, you know, I could dig a little snow trench and I was carrying the fly from our three man tent. So I could have, uh, huh. I could have dug a trench and wrapped up and shivered till, you know, first light when the snow let up to find my way down again. But um, I am very, very great. Because you can see everything from there. Once the snow stops. Absolutely. Once there's no whiteout. Yeah. I mean, even at Mm. night, you could probably see lights. Not that. Yeah. But I'm very, very grateful to the, um, the National Park Rescue crew that came and got me. You know, they had to not just come from the top of the lift station, but all the way from the valley in order to come up and uh, rescue me off of the mountain. So I, I have nothing but positive things to say about them and their professionalism and their efforts as well as the other, the other guides, excuse me. So, you know, it's really nice how the guides from the different companies work together when there is an emergency on the mountain. Mm. So it wasn't just the company that I was working with. It was, when I got down to the highest huts, it, you know, 
everybody was who, who was still on the mountain. All the professionals are waiting there for me, welcomed me in, gave me, you know, a warm bowl of soup and, um, and a shot of vodka as a survivor. <laughs> there you go. Man. Uh, yeah, I mean, I appreciate you sharing all that, Matt. Um, I mean, it really reinforces uh, that a lot of people have this idea that, you know, Elbrus is often referred to as one of the two easiest of the seven summits, Kilimanjaro <laughs> and then Elbrus. Um, but, I mean, this reinforces how dangerous it can be. And probably some of our listeners heard uh, in September it was probably a week or so after you climbed. Yeah, four days. There was a terrible, yeah, terrible tragedy on the mountain where um, a group of, it was a group of 15 climbers, yeah, and five of them died. Um, it was just a terrible tragedy, and it was a mixture of really bad weather. There was definitely some bad decision-making on the guide's behalf. Um, but, you know, it's not to point fingers, but, I mean, the result was terrible, you know. And you experienced a lot of those things, the bad weather, you were sick, you couldn't see. Um, but you made a really good decision and radioed down and just waited, waited it out. So really thankful you're okay. Um, and, I mean, like you said, the rescue services are fantastic. I mean, that... They they do a great job, and they're pretty consistently having to pull people off the mountain for one reason or another. Um, yeah, I mean, that's so. There's some really interesting points to this. Um, I mean, one thing that that people die from in like outdoors, you know, adventures is underestimating the terrain for one. And just like you said, Kilimanjaro, Elbrus, they look like big hills. They are in the big. You know, they're non-technical, da-da-da-da-da. But at 18,000 feet, there's nothing that's not dangerous, you know. Um, and so this is like the underestimating the train. Then it's also interesting to me that you you traversed, you went up a glacier at a 60-degree slope, you dug in for two days, you were in a lightning storm, but it was 15 minutes from the base that you were in your greatest personal danger. Right. Potentially. You know, right. or your most critical moment. It's like... You know, these horrible stories of someone who's a quarter mile off the trail in the Grand Canyon, but they panic and you, and they stop making good decisions. You had like discipline and wherewithal to make good decisions, stick by it, you know, and a lot of, um, you know, and, and, and a lot of help from other people. So, um, I think that that's really interesting, like instructive too, just like, even when you're basically in sight of the base, you have to have a, a disciplined mindset to, you know, mm. to stay safe and like be patient if something yeah goes wrong. I don't know. What were, what did you learn from it, Matt? I mean, some stuff you already shared in terms of the actual moment, but did you have any big takeaways for you or kind of aha moments? Not so much an aha moment. I, but just a general getting more comfortable with the region, um, spending time below the mountain was for me mm. much more memorable than the climb. The climb is kind of a long, slow, you know, exercise session <laughs> where you're just being <laughs> careful where you step. Um, but the cultural bit in the region was just fantastic. You know, by far, you know, you know, slaughtering a sheep 
that Herzog, you know, fresh, fresh meat for Shashlik was much more memorable than anything that happened on the mountain. Mm, um, yeah. Interesting. Definitely cannot wait to get back over there next June for the project. And this time, I think, uh, depending on the group, we'll probably have a large, large cookout. You know, many sheep, many people. A good party. Get <laughs> to know people. Sheep. Awesome. That's but, great. Yeah, so you you guys did, you had a couple of days there on the, the west side uh, in Hurzuk among the Karachai. And then when you came down on the south side, you ended up at a wedding spontaneously. Um <laughs> I mean, you really had like a, f- and plus like on the front end, back end, you were kind of accompanied by local Karachai, uh, Muhammad, uh, Maga. So like you really had a pretty rich kind of cultural time before and after your climb, huh? I really did. It was, um, I would like to definitely spend more time, you know, in the region you know, before and after yeah. a climb on the next visit. I was able to do a small, like, um, wood fired banya prior to the climb at a camp there up near Herzog, I would like to explore to find a larger, you know, more professional banya in Petagorsk, you know, following the climb next time. I'd like to experience what it is to, you know, get the the proper steam done by a steam master. Yeah. We can arrange that. Don't worry. (laughs) Maximum pain. (laughs) that's um i love that too though because yeah elbrus may be one of the biggest draws to the region it's like you come for elbrus you stay for the locals kind of you know like or that's what brings you back or that's what gets Mm. you know really connect your heart to to a place i really love that yeah i'm very disappointed the united states government has not taken down their travel warning for the region yet yeah it's i in travels, I've it's as safe as I've ever felt anywhere I've traveled. I've people, yeah. I didn't get any sideways glances. You know, no. Obviously, I'm a foreigner. You can tell that from a hundred meters away. But <laughs> nothing but curiosity, um, positive curiosity, and being welcomed. It was difficult to spend money. People wanted to help. People wanted to feed you. (laughs) Yep. The old tourist problem, you know, tourists always have that problem. Oh, wait. No, they don't. (laughs) Just a beautiful region full of beautiful people. And um, that's definitely previously my one home away from home was Zambia, where my wife's family is from. I've done perhaps seven trips through the area there, and I've become quite comfortable. I think that it's increasingly likely that the Elbrus region will become my second home away from home in the next decade. Wow. That's awesome. Well, two peas in the pods there, Zambia and Elbrus. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool, Matt. Wow, man. Good stuff. So Matt, uh, we'll kind of land this plane. Um, what do you want to say to our listeners about, uh, this um, kind of initiative you started, El Bruce for Alpinists. Uh, if people are, are you looking for people to join your team? I mean, you have this incredible team of multinational team you've assembled so far. Um, 
Are you guys hoping to do a climb every year? I know you you mentioned this plan to have infrastructure start. What are you hoping to see the next uh, one, two, five, ten years? So the you know projected path for the project will be next June, second half of June. Our team will come over. You know we will climb the Northwest Face. We're hoping to make a documentary film, do some reporting. Um, Nathaniel Menninger is going to you know be part of that project. Hopefully. And from there, it's going to be just further work with the local people. You know, we'll start to build, start to train as they desire. Um, I imagine there's going to be some false starts. They might have a season or two where they have an initial idea for how they want tourism to work. And then they may, you know, refine that idea and we'll have to adjust to that. But we do need to do fundraising for the film crew. and we. Thankfully, have our first uh, corporate partner interested, Deuter, out of Germany, is wanting to partner with us. So I'm very happy for their interest. Um, Beyond that, we need to start just our outreach right now. We're currently working on a presentation for fundraising purposes. And two weekends ago, I spoke with Heidi McDowell and Eddie Espinosa of the American Alpine Club. Hopefully, we can involve them in some outreach. Gotcha. Wow. And so, yeah, really just really getting into the larger networking thing where we're going to begin to bring over some teams. We are partnering, it looks like, um, with the Royal Geographical Society and the Alpine Club out of the UK. Hopefully run some youth trekking with different university climbing and trekking groups out of the UK. But we'll just begin to slowly bring people over build a web presence for the people in Herzog and the surrounding area and just gradually grow the tourism in the region, you know, over the next five to 10 years. So, and it does have the potential for, you know, kind of different kinds of tourism. So everybody doesn't have to be an Alpine climber, you know, there's rock climbing, there's horse trekking, you know, you can do a thing where an entire family visits and maybe mom and the kids do a horseback ride in the valleys while, you know, dad does some rock climbing or climbs Elbrus, or you just right. go and do a cultural tour. There's a lot of opportunities that don't involve even climbing Elbrus from that area. Yeah. So we're, we're going to try to work out, you know, all of the different activities, you know, you know, do some trips, taking photographs, build out, you know, the advertisements for the people there to get just a broader mountain tourism industry built up over the next five to 10 years. But we definitely need partners. We need people to, you know, mention the project on social media. You know, podcasts like this are fantastic just for broad awareness that there is work. There are opportunities, you know, even if you don't go through our project. Just if you're considering climbing Elbrus and you have climbing skills, mid-level, nothing serious. Uh, go to the west side of the mountain, you know, spend some time and money in the valley. You yep. know, you don't have to do the walk up from the south. There are options, even though, you know, American and European companies don't advertise it. It's just beautiful right. land. And, you know, get off the track for a week. Go check it out. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. You should uh, see if KLM wants to partner also. <coughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, they. No, no, I'm cool. sure. In, hey, in other times, they're great. <laughs> KLM, you can redeem yourself. Step up, sponsor a climber. We'll put your logo on. If you acknowledge your mistake and come in and help some of the local people, we will forgive you. That's right. 
Well, Matt, um, yeah, I just have nothing to, but good things to say about you as a person and really this initiative you've created. I remember the first phone call we had, I was kind of speechless because you just had like so much in your mind that you had already thought up. And then since that moment, like you've made so much progress, you've clearly worked hard at it. You're passionate about it. Um, I really appreciate, um, I mean, you're, you're bringing in both sides the the climbing piece you're serious about, but also like, I mean, I just appreciate so much how the respect and honor you've shown towards the local kind of chai people and wanting to partner there. So we're, we're excited yeah. to see the direction it goes. And obviously if there are ways we can help, uh, we're going to be involved as well. Well, thank you. Yeah. So, um, maybe why don't you give out, uh, like you said, m- most companies don't offer or promote the West route. So I think this is a fine moment to like give a shout out to the company you're partnering with. Cause they're experienced on that side of the mountain. If anybody does want to kind of uh, experience that for themselves. So the company, uh, the website is mountainguides.pro, run by Sergey Baranov. Excellent individual, very responsive. My two times using his company have been fantastic, super flexible, mm-hmm. super engaging. I right. have nothing in lines of a critique. He, Sergey himself has stepped up to preemptively clear any hurdle that I'd run into. So it's anything that he could be aware of, he was helping with, um, his staff was helping with, you know, his guides are phenomenal. So terrific. Yeah. It's if you're coming from the U S North America, Europe, and you're looking for an opportunity to take a different route or even just climb somewhere else in the region, do rock climbing in Dombai or anything like that. Um, absolutely check out Sergey's company, mountain guides.pro. They're phenomenal. Great. We'll put them in Good the show stuff. notes. Yeah. Yeah, Matt, you've, you've said, you've said some great things about the region. Um, if there's one thing you could tell the world about the North Caucasus, what would it be? Wow. It's um, just a friendly place. It's beautiful and it's friendly. It's, I have never traveled anywhere where I just felt so relaxed and welcoming, you know, right as you step off, you know, airplane, it's, you want to ch- if you want a place that looks exciting but isn't difficult, you know the North Caucasus <laughs> is absolutely a great thing to consider. Just hmm. it's very easy to get along once you're there. You know it's not hard to find food or supplies or transportation. Just and culturally, you know, from a traveler perspective, there's a lot of different local groups. It makes it intriguing. It's not just a uniform know culture as you drive around so right it's it's something it should be on people's list when they're thinking of where to spend some time i like hearing that well thank you for that thanks for yeah yeah, sharing your insights and your experiences i mean i think one thing that's really gratifying andrew for us is being a having a little part to play in people getting connected, you know, through the Facebook page or whatever, you know, it's not like we're masterminding anything. We're just kind of sharing stuff, but people are getting connected and crossing paths. So listeners, I hope that's inspiring to you and spend some time on the Facebook page and on the comments. See, see what kind of people are there. Chances are there's going to be something that, you know, might relate to something you're passionate about all the more reason to come.
All the more reason. <laughs> well, Matt, maybe our listeners will see you in the west west face of Elbrus. Hopefully I'll be back many times. So awesome. Thank you guys for listening. Please do connect. Check out the sh- show notes and uh, we will see you when you get here.